Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today I'm joined by Dr. Sandra Palavacino. Now, Dr. Palavacino uh, works in a small town in Seaford, Delaware, but she's originally from Venezuela. She got her medical degree at the University of Venezuela and completed her training, was practicing doctor in Venezuela, but then moved to the United States. So she had to redo her residency, which is just part of the rules for uh, foreign graduates coming into the U.S., where she did her internal medicine residency again at the University of Connecticut. And as you'll hear, she then got interested in obesity medicine. So she's now board certified in both internal medicine and obesity medicine. And she's the director of the medical weight loss program at Tidal Health in, in, in um, Seaford, Delaware. And she has a, a great perspective on this because as an obesity medicine specialist and as the director of a medical weight loss clinic, she needs to know all the tools available for weight loss. So whether that's medications, whether that's uh, very low car, uh, very low calorie meal replacements, and of course, what diets are going to work best and how to work best with bariatric surgeons to get the most benefit out of what they're doing both pre and post operatively. So she, she understands the whole picture. And I think that's so important um, both from sort of a science perspective of knowing what works, but knowing also what works with the patients and the behavioral changes that need to happen. And that's where I really like her perspective. She talks a lot about behavior management, and those are certainly things that we do not learn in medical school, that we do not learn in residency. Um, so to hear her talk about that as uh, sort of the, the prime intervention that she does with her patients, I think is so important. And, and so I really hope you can take away some nuggets about what that means, what that might mean for you individually, what that might mean uh, for physicians. And as you'll hear me conclude at the end of the interview, uh, this is the physician people need to work with, right? This is the, if you really want to lose weight and you want to work with a, a weight loss specialist, this is the type of approach and philosophy um, I think so many physicians should have. And I hope it gives you hope that you can have that approach. Um, whether it's with her or with others who think like her, um, they're out there. And so if you're not getting this type of detailed approach and thoughtful approach, uh, maybe it's time to start searching uh, for someone who can give that to you. So uh, with that, I hope you enjoy uh, this interview with Dr. Sandra Palavacino. Dr. Sandra Palavacino, thank you so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast today. Oh, Brett, thank you for your invitation. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you are board certified both in internal medicine and in obesity medicine, and you're mm -hmm. the director of the medical weight loss program. So you spend all day helping people lose weight and maintain that weight loss. But I'm So I want to talk to you about the specifics, but I'm curious about sort of how you got to this point um, in your career. Is it, you know, in your training, was, was, were you always interested in focusing on weight loss and sort of how did that happen? So give us a little background about how you got to this point. Well, my medical career started a long time ago, right? And after, in my country, you go right after uh, school, you go to medical school. So no, at the beginning, my interest was more in infectious disease, tropical medicine. I did uh, work in the Amazon jungle with malaria. That was my most interest until I moved to Connecticut where there's no tropical medicine going on. So, um, but in, during my training uh, as a resident for the internal medicine program, they did have um, a, a small rotation through a weight loss clinic, which was very interesting. And when I moved and started working here in Delaware, I saw the big need of something else besides regular advice to my patients for weight loss. And that's what I got really, really interested. 
So I will say that was about 2012, 2013. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about the cultural differences just in terms of obesity and lifestyle. When you were in Venezuela, was it you weren't as focused on it because you were doing tropical medicine or was it simply, was obesity and metabolic disease simply not as prevalent? So it wasn't as obvious. Definitely not as prevalent in Back then, remember the country I live in, it doesn't exist anymore. So, but back then, even with all the, um, you know, wealth that we had, I don't think obesity was a focus at all for us as doctors. So that could also be part of our, parts of our education that is missing. We wasn't really never a focus, um, over there. You know, it, I did a very tough internal medicine program back home, uh, very complicated patients, uh, fourth uh, level, hospital level. And it was very interesting in all points of view, but obesity was definitely not on the top of anybody's mind at that point. Yes, that must have been a little bit of culture shock then. You come to the United States and all of a sudden, everywhere you turn, the majority of your patients uh, are suffering from overweight or obesity, metabolic dysfunction. Did it, did it take you a little time to sort of say, wait a second, this isn't right. Something's wrong here. What do we, what can I do differently? Like, what was your progression like there? Absolutely. So during training, you just focus and like finish your fellowship, even though this was my, my, my residence or even though this was my second time, but you know, you follow the rules and you do it again. And then I still thought I was going to go for infectious diseases afterwards, but then the opportunity came for us to move to Delaware and there, down here in Southern Delaware, there's no um, teaching hospitals or places to further continue to your education. So I love internal medicine. Don't take me wrong. I said, Let, that, let's do it. I'll do it in, um, 100%. And I was in practice and I had my aha moment, right? Like a lot of us, because I was helping these patients to, I will bring, I will be one of those doctors that will bring the obesity to the front for the conversation. But then that was it. I had nothing else to give them. Whatever I was telling them that we should be doing, this is what we should be eating. Uh, the next appointment, the next appointment, nothing's changing. The doctor's gaining a lot of weight. My labs were being abnormal. So I said, there has to be something else. Um, so that's what I decided to investigate some more, found the Obesity Medical Association um, uh, lectures about you know how to get to, through the boards. And I know this is going to sound a little bit dif different, but I went to that conference and I met Dr. Andrea Enfield and that was my aha moment. This oh. is what I can do for my patients. Oh, that's great. We'll have to make sure Andres uh, hears this, that he was the motivating factor. That's fantastic. Well, no, it, it, he, I told him the next time I met with him, it's like, it was fantastic. You, you opened my eyes. I really, I listened to, I was there for like three, four days and his conference, what, maybe an hour, but I, that changed me for real, came back to Southern Delaware and tried to give these teachings to the people down here with all our challenges. Um, and it has worked great. It's been six years almost. Wow. Well, so let's talk about some of those challenges. So Southern Delaware in a pretty rural environment, low uh -huh. socioeconomic class, uh -huh. you know, so much of the, I think so much of the low carb conversation kind of gravitates towards, you know, grass fed, nose to tail, high quality, but that type of discussion just can't even start. It's a non-starter for, for a low socioeconomic class. Uh, population like you have. So mm -hmm. it's a whole, it's a big set of hurdles I think you have from an education and compliance standpoint. So mm -hmm. what have you found as some of the, the biggest hurdles to people 
adopting low carb and sticking mm -hmm. with it. Um, what, what do you see as some challenges? Well, first, um, the challenges, well, this is uh, just to introduce you to kind of what I see all day when I'm driving to work. It's a very rural area. There are um, farms, but basically the farms are the major economic factor here is the poultry and the poultry plants. So when you see farms around here growing corn or other grains, it's not really for human consumption, even though some way it you know, gets to their population of the area, but it's basically to feed this poultry. Um, and then that's kind of what I see here all the time. So even though it's a lower socioeconomic, it's very, it's very hardworking people that keep us fed in other parts of the country. So one of the challenges they always have when they come to visit with me is that I'm not going to lose weight because, you know, I've never been able to do it because I live in Southern Delaware. And I say, well, think about this. You were not able to do it because we were not giving you the right advice. So I get that challenge a little bit out of the way. Then they go, well, but here we don't have like Whole Foods or, you know, these brand supermarkets that will sell you all these fresh things. And I say, well, but here we are not in a, in a community that uh, works with farmers. So you don't have whole foods, but you have all these little farm stands all over the place that you can just go and get fresh food. So that challenge is a little bit. Now you have to like them and know how to prepare them, but at least we get that a little bit out of the way. Other challenges like, yeah, but I don't have a chef. I don't live in California and I don't have a <laughs> trainer. Um, and I say, well, we can definitely um use this weather and this nice beaches around here, we can go for walks. And then you don't really, if you follow low carb, high fat diets, you definitely don't need a chef, very simple recipes. We will make it happen for you. And then, um, I think for me, the biggest, biggest, I am a very positive person. So I always try to make them understand those are challenges, but not obstacles. We will work with it. But I think my main, main challenge around here is the fact that many of my patients do have two or three jobs. Yeah. Um, one of the major employees here are, like I'm saying, the, the food processing plants, which have ship work. And so is the hospitals and the, um, and the medical system, which is this, the other big employer in the area. So ship work is a big thing, having two or three jobs and not taking this um, treatment of obesity as very seriously. They mm -hmm. think they go to the cardiologist for sure. They don't miss that appointment. Thinking about losing weight is not as serious for them until I make it forefront. And then that's how we go. Yeah. So it's just so interesting that with your population, since they sort of are agriculturally based and have knowledge mm -hmm. about food mm -hmm. production and food mm -hmm. system, that's a, an opportunity. That's something that they have that someone in the inner cities or in South Chicago or wh mm -hmm. where Tony Ham Dr. Tony Hampton is in those settings, mm -hmm. they don't have that knowledge or that connection to food. So I think that's really interesting and, and a exactly. definite benefit. Yeah. Definitely. It's a, it's a point that they haven't realized until, plus there's, it's not a big amount, but we have a lot of people around here that enjoy um, uh, hunting and fishing, and that's definitely grass-fed. So I said, go for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can't grain feed a wild animal. There's uh, yeah, no something way. to be said about that. But mm -hmm. I, I, that's great. I mean, I think that's such an important part of just society and knowledge in general, that more people need that connection to the land, that connection and understanding of where our food comes from. And I think that would change a lot of people's perception. So I, I really like to hear that that's the population you're dealing mm -hmm. with, and that you take advantage mm -hmm. of that. You really can use right. that to their benefit. Yeah, so right. great. But the, the concept of, uh, I don't need to lose weight is not important. It's not mm -hmm. on the forefront of my mind. So that's a definite hurdle you have mm -hmm. to overcome. And that is prevalent everywhere, especially when 
they say, no one's really made it an issue before. My doctors haven't made it an issue or I've tried and it didn't work and you know I'm, I'm a failure, so I'm not going to try again. So this concept of other people not prioritizing it or other people giving the wrong message. And, mm-hmm. and when you're trying to teach them something new, I mean, do you have to overcome that barrier of them being like, no, this is just one more thing that's not going to work. I'm not going to waste my time. Do you get sort of like the breaks right away when you start talking to people? Yeah. So when I, so when I, when I started to a hundred percent, because at some point I will do 50, 50 internal medicine and I open my weight loss clinic and slowly build it up. But, um, now I have all the time to spend with them. And I mean, I do have a schedule that I have to follow, but I will always open the conversation to how can I help you? And I'm sure most of us do that because the more scary patient I have is the one who tells me my doctor sent me here and I don't really know (laughs) what I'm going to do here. So that's tough patient because you need to convince them. Uh, that this is an important uh, part of their health and life, et cetera. Now, when they come to us and they already know, like patients is like, I want to lose weight, improve my diabetes, et cetera. You can immediately say you're in the right place. We're going to help you. Um, We're going to do our best to, to be there for you and help you. So that has been a big one. And like you said, I am consider, I consider myself, you know, I study a lot. I know the science. I go to our conferences. I follow the guidelines. I see uh, the, um, the CMEs and I know all that. But my big challenge was to explain that to the patient when they come in for the first time. What is obesity? This is not just some extra weight and around your belly. This is much more. And explain it to them and meet them where they are so they can really take this seriously, as seriously as I'm taking it. Listen to them, uh, listen to the history of weight, how they explain to you, how they've been gaining or losing or what has happened to them regaining. And um, see, um, evaluate all the reasons that they think is related to the weight gain for me to just basically change their mind around it. Everybody blames the lack of exercise. And I'm like, well, I'm going to change your mind about this. Uh, everybody lacks the lacks um, that having a chef or something. I'm going to change your mind about this. We can definitely do it. So that has a big, uh, big challenge for me. Try to bring the science to an, my patient's level and make them understand how it's connected to real life. So how do you how do you relay the science in terms of the risks of obesity? Because we can think of obesity as a couple of different levels. There's sort of like the functional level where maybe you're winded going upstairs now, or you can't play mm-hmm. with your kids, mm-hmm. or your grandkids, like you want to. Right. Um, and that's that's pretty pertinent for people and and a big, strong motivator. Um, but then, you know, we, you can read things about, well, obesity by itself isn't a risk factor for cardiovascular disease or death. It's only if you have the metabolic dysfunctions and there's, I I don't know if my take, there's a little bit of disagreement in the literature, whether obesity is truly an independent risk factor. Mm -hmm. Do you go into that kind of detail? And I'd like to hear your take on that as well, because I'm not as up on the literature, I'm sure as you are, but so what's (laughs) your take on it and, and how do you relate that to the patients? Listen, I have created different scenarios that I portray to my patients. It's like a theater in my room. Okay, this is when the food comes in here. And then this is what happens to the food when it comes in. So if you can storage much more, you will have obesity maybe without all this 
changes in your blood work, um, I explain, I try to use all analogies possible that have been working for me with the patients like storage area and hallway. Yeah. How do you keep your sugars in a good level? Because you do have a big storage part, which is your fat cell. How your fat cells actually trying to help you not to develop diabetes until, you know, things get overwhelmed. Um, and then the patients do understand that having chronic obesity or having diabetes, fatty liver, is probably the same disease as just we're seeing it from a different perspective. So that's when when I introduce the eating plan, they don't feel like, oh, but I don't have diabetes and you're asking me not to eat sugar. Well, but we are on the same boat. This is all an insulin disease. For, for I will say for the vast majority of the patients that cross my door. So I'm feeling uh, very confident preaching to that big choir and then explain to them what, it is and what they're supposed to be doing. Then you will always find those patients that no matter what you do, um, their obesity is very stubborn and it's really hard to lose weight. And then we, you try all the strategies. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, they come to you for weight loss. Do they come to you specifically for low carb weight loss or are you sort of a weight loss clinic using multiple modalities and low carb is one of those modalities? How does your practice style work? Well, I like to say that I'm very open-minded and I will uh, meet the patient where they are and try to help them however I can. But I have to confess that most of my practice is low carb um, and, and intermittent fasting for those patients who want that, or I'd recommend and they follow. Um, I did train both my dietitians that work with me in that uh, area. I even work with a surgeon who our surgical patients are doing low carb pre and post op, and also, I mean, his patients, right? Pre and post op, and they are doing fasting. So I do believe like I tell my patients, the reason why you're here today with me, the reason why you're having such a hard time losing weight or understanding this disease is the way you're going to eat, no matter which else happens. The food is more, most important, and that's the basis of the, of the treatment. As, an, um, as a board-certified obesity medicine, we can always prescribe medications. And I, could, um, I decided in my career that I wanted to learn about this uh, bariatric surgery patients, how to, do, how to, under, how to help them understand uh, pre-op and what to do with the patient's post-op. Because I thought, well, no matter what, they're gonna have the surgery. They're not even coming to me for that. But I need, somebody needs to understand what, how to help them and, and what to do with these patients for them to be very successful. Otherwise, they are going to regain the weight in some cases. Right, and that's an important point. The recidivism rate or the weight regain um, can be high. Uh, it's not like you can undergo bariatric surgery and then go back to eating whatever you want. Like that's kind of defeats the purpose a little bit. Right. Um, so what they eat afterwards is important. So, um, what kind of challenges do you face with post-op post-bariatric surgery patients trying to get them to adopt a healthy low carb lifestyle and stick with right. it? So, so I, I go back to the beginning, like, well, could, let, talk, talk to me about before you had the surgery, how did you gain in the weight? Tell me the story. Uh, what were the, the, the things that you tried that did work? didn't work which medications were you on because that's going to define what you're eating from now on um for, for me maybe i'm a little bit biased because when they come to me it's because they're in trouble a lot of patients who had uh, surgery with uh, our surgeon here may not come back to me 
but the ones who come to me are the ones who are in trouble. And um, it's a lot of explaining to them that how obesity actually works as a chronic condition in the sense that when you lose all your fat, uh, your brain most of the time is, or your hormones will um, work in a way that you will actually regain that way. So you need to understand that our main um, battleground is not really weight loss. It's like you were saying at the very beginning, a weight loss maintenance or what I call a rehabilitation of our patients with this chronic condition. So um, like in any chronic disease model, you have prevention, treatment, and rehabilitation. So if somebody who has undergo bariatric surgery, what I see it, it's okay, you were able to achieve a low weight, but now you need to keep it off by understanding how that it works inside you with your hormones, with your um, eating habits and your behavior so we can keep it control. All right. So I would imagine dealing with a surgical population is probably pretty different in some ways, although similar in a lot of ways, is dealing with a non-surgical population because you're not just dealing with behavioral uh, modifications, but you're also dealing with anatomical changes now that they've had surgery. So, um, you know, people who want to eat one meal a day and make sure you're getting adequate protein or even two meals a day with adequate protein and relatively larger meals, um, while that might work for a non-operative patient, will that also work for someone who, who has had surgery? So what kind of adjustments do you need to make with people when they're in the post-operative setting? Right. So in the post-operative setting, in the, in the very first six months, they normally do work with the surgeon and the dietitians. So they follow their post-op protocol with this liquid diet, semi-liquid, multi-different like, textures until they can eat just normal food. That's when they go back to me about six months after the procedure. And basically, we're still recommending for them low-carb diets, reminding them that carbohydrates and processed foods give them no nutrition. And now in their small space that they have available to digest their food, it has to be filled out with the most nutritional thing they can find in their plate in front of them. So I really emphasize that protein will be always first, then we move on to the vegetables and there'll be no hunger or there'll be satiety by the time they even think about going to the carbohydrates. So uh, it's something that we even teach them beforehand. So for us, it's been working really well to do the introduction with low carbohydrate. That's what the dietitians teach the patients too. And then post-op, we just continue with it. Now, when they're more advanced in the post-op stages, especially if they're having troubles with continued weight loss or they find they're facing weight regain, definitely intermittent fasting has played a big role in our practice. I'm not saying this is what every surgical practice should be doing, but it's working for our patients. Intermittent fasting uh, is so easy for them to understand and follow that it, it, it works really well. So even my surgeon, it's um, embracing it because we do it in a way that it's not about the time you don't eat. It's about eating when you're not hungry and, and, and try to understand that. And that will be the principal symptom for you to go back to eat, even if it's after surgery. Yeah. So hunger is such an interesting cue. I mean, it's a simple word. Everybody knows what the word means, but not everybody knows what it feels like. And not everybody knows what satiety feels like. And whether it's a, you know, brain gut connection or, or the uh, fullness hormones or the hunger hormones, uh, resistance to them. So that's something that kind of different people need to be trained in different ways. And I'd imagine that changes for a surgical patient or a non-surgical patient as well. So, so how do you help people 
become more in tune with sort of their hunger feelings and being able to react to them in different ways rather than, you know, fear it or trying to avoid it? Oh my gosh, I love this question because this is this is really what I focus on every day because I know how to get it done, but how to explain it. Hunger is the best way to explain how low carb will help you without showing them lab test results and, you know, like scale numbers. But um, patients are amazed. I say in my first ever appointment with them always, listen, rule number one, we're going to decrease the sugar and starch processed food. Rule number two, we're going to eat only when we're hungry. And they look at me and say, well, that's ev- like, that's every hour. And I say, it, <laughs> it will be every hour until, but you will eat from this like options. And then you will be amazed when you come back and they come back. Like today I had a patient who did amazing. And then she's like, I don't even remember what I had. I'm like, well, that tells me you're not even interested anymore. So th- that's pretty good. Um, so hunger is definitely a symptom that I follow very strict with my patients and every visit we discuss when are you feeling hungry how are you feeling it i ask them to describe it for me where do you feel it and and can you describe which color which texture which is it hot as a cold because i want them to discover that most of the time we eat because not because we're hungry and even if we are it's not a terrible sensation that you cannot delay for a few more minutes until you get to your actual meal and avoid all the snacking now for surgical patients i are for the like the changes that you're mentioning in the satiety and hunger hormones that they will get from this metabolic surgery, they will be not hungry because otherwise imagine it will be torture if they're so hungry, can eat only so little. Uh, So the metabolic surgeries are achieving that so they're not so hungry for a while. The hunger comes back and at some point after like nine months, uh, 10 months, 11 months, when your body's leptin is so low and they're trying to regain this weight like crazy. So their their hunger comes back and this is perfect time to meet again with me and, and tell them, listen, we're gonna just listen to the hunger hormones. We're going to eat this low carb approach because uh, we wanna eat the most nutritional thing you can have in front of you. And then they will continue their journey and trying to lose weight and be successful. So it's definitely hunger is fascinating. It's just fascinating how uh, we all perceive it in different ways and respond to it in different ways. And that's kind of core for my program. And one more thing I want to add in there is that, like I'm saying, I do use the science to explain the diet. And I tell them it's not that I mean, I'm telling you this is science and let me explain it to you. This is how we want you to eat. And I think I'm doing a great job and the patient follows it. And some patients even take anti-obesity medications and it's still a, a percentage of, or some of them have surgery and it's still a percentage of my population don't lose weight. And, and that puzzles me so much. And then this is when I have to go into this explaining what hunger is. It's like going to this counseling and behavioral changes and that finally makes a trick and they uh, are successful. Yeah. So those are, those are really impressive and powerful behavioral health techniques that you're talking about. Where do you feel it? What color is it? to, to get people more in tune with it. Now I can guarantee you, you didn't learn those in medical school or residency. No, no, I didn't. (laughs) Okay. Um, I don't know if you remember, uh, we were in the conference in, in Boca Raton, the low carb and you know what I took, that was back in February before January, February before COVID. And, um, one thing I took from that is that you see, you were one of the speakers and some of the others that normally treat the body. We're talking about the mind. You remember listening about the serotonin uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, 
uh, fasting and all that, but the dopamine fast. So, so all the, and he, that's coming from a surgeon. So everybody who's treating normally the body is talking about the mind. And those doctors that were there for us, that were psychiatrists and psychologists, they were talking about how insulin changed how they treat their patients. So they're working with the body, right? But for me, I, that is like, I knew that. I just need to know how to get through these patients and how to explain to them that the behavior that follows this biological change is what you need to grasp to keep these and, and go through what I call your, um, you, your, um, so you don't regain the weight, which is, um, like your rehabilitation phase. When you become mm -hmm. this person who, this is what we eat. This is how I keep my body healthy. And we are focusing in the things we could consume and eat and the times that we could eat instead of focusing in the things we're left in behind. And that is yeah. very powerful. Yeah. I, I think that's such an important point because on the one hand, it can seem incredibly complicated because not only do you have to give a message of a nutritional program that doesn't contribute to hunger, but you also have to get the patient in touch with their hunger and learn how to respond to it. And none of these things are things you were taught. So for the average doctor to do that, it's incredibly challenging. And that's why it's so important to have experts like you who do this, who specialize in it, who know how to do it so you can educate the patients, but also go to conferences where people are talking about it, trying to educate other doctors mm -hmm. to then have that trickle down effect. And, mm -hmm. and so we need sort of more and more of that. Now, do you find, um, some of your, your colleagues are maybe confused about what you do or opposed to what you do or you know, argue with you or how do you find that? I listen, when I started, I just mentioned before that I used to do it, this obesity medicine in my own practice as an internal medicine. And I have to say at the beginning, no, I was just using or working, sorry, not used about working with my patients. Nobody will um, refer anyone because I was doing it inside that same building. I imagine uh, they've known me for two or three years being a primary care in the area. When I moved to do it in another office, totally different and 100% weight loss, oh, I get a lot of referrals from my colleagues that are primary care too, because you can only imagine how long it takes me to go through all these teachings. Now, they are being my best supporters and they send me patients because they want their patients to get better, but they don't have the time. And we always complain about that, right? So I make the time. We do talk, even though my appointments are the same, 15 and 30 minutes, uh, depending. But I do emphasize in these areas that we had no time when we were doing the primary care. So they're being very big supporters. And, and when they see their patients going back to them, they've lost t uh, three, five, 10% of their weight and they're improving all their um, um, numbers in their uh, blood test, they keep supporting for them to continue to visit with me because our visits are very frequent. Now, um, at the beginning, when I started the low carb and, and all and in high fat, because I really this the, this is the program I follow, uh, low carb high fat, and the the, uh, the patients will go to my colleagues, the cardiologists across the street, and they will tell them, no, I don't think you heard her right. I don't think she said that. And the patients will say, yes, she told us that in a class. You know, we were all there. Um, but now years has passed, and they are very good supporters. They, all my colleagues around, they say, just do what, what, do what she said to the point that, uh, for the first time, you see obesity medicine was included in the top doctors of Delaware. It was always the surgeons uh, who will be there and, and, and your colleagues are the ones who vote and they give me the award for this year. So hey. that was that. I mean, that's for me, a recognition of the whole obesity medicine group, which is totally a new thing and nobody 
no, they thought I was sitting here just prescribing diets, which is not really what I do. You know, I, I, yeah. I will not prescribe a Monday to Friday diet. Somebody who doesn't understand why we're doing this. Right. So that's that's a big right. recognition for my colleagues. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's the showing that success speaks for itself, that mm -hmm. you, when your patients are having success, doctors take notice and that's take what notice. we need. Right. Absolutely. And the government too. One other thing that we do here in Delaware, I don't know if you have these numbers, so let me just tell you quick, but Delaware is like number 16. This little state is the, the third smallest state. And we have, um, uh, we're number 16 in the, the state of obesity, you know, uh, map, uh, with an, um, incidence of maybe it's like right now like prevalence rate of 35 34 obesity in adults wow. those are patients with a bmi more than 30. so i that prompted me to contact medicaid i mean as part of the star program which is the state representative advocacy representative and say listen it's, it's a little bit concerning that in medicaid we need more help in here so i mean it was just an email and they I went to visit with the Medicaid director and deputy director. They listened to me for 30 minutes. They say, Dr. Dr. Palavacino, we're going to do changes. And now Delaware, well, I have to say they were already open to obesity as a chronic disease. That is, that was a new for them, but all the treatments and say, listen, I'm sitting there every day, helping patients to lose weight. You need to support. So with that meeting, uh, they even changed some of the prescription panels. They um, now Medicaid has, same number of visits as Medicare for obesity in Delaware. And that is fantastic. And it was just an email away. So those are things that we can do to help this population. That's a, that's a great example of not just sort of sitting back and being passive about how you take care of your patients, but being active, not just with your patients, but with the whole system mm -hmm. to really make an impact and make your job better at helping more people. I mean, that's fantastic. I love to see examples like so that, that too. That's another advantage to be in a small state that you still have a voice uh, and you can go and get things kind of done. Yeah. But I think so many people just see it as like, oh, there's this big bureaucracy and it's too much work. It'll mm -hmm. never, I'll never make any headway. So I just give up. So, okay. So maybe a smaller state's a little bit easier than a, than a larger state, but still the fact that you, you have a voice, use that right. voice and you did. And that's a perfect example. It, it, yeah. Delaware until a year and a half ago, had obesity treatment as cosmetic treatment and that has changed. And that was amazing really? for me. Yeah. I said, it's important. How could you have this as cosmetic treatment? This is 2019. Let's tell let me tell you about this. <laughs> that's great. Well, good for you. Good for now. You, we've talked about um, nutrition. We've talked about surgery. Now, there are also a, kind of a laundry list of medications that people mm -hmm. can use mm -hmm. for obesity. And, you know, let's face it, a, a part of the American culture is sort of looking for the quick fix and mm -hmm. wanting the quick prescription mm -hmm. to just give me the pill I need to take to fix this. Um, so do you use prescription medications for weight loss? What do you see as their role um, give us your take yeah. on that. So I will say um, I did did start prescribing some of these uh, medications because I was curious to see how much could this help the patient. But even though I disagree with some of my colleagues, I will not prescribe in the first appointment because I tell them, listen, most of the research done in these medications were done after patients have changed their uh, diets. If you look back at, let's say, I'm not going to name, but some of those drugs, they will do like at eight, 12 year, 12 months, sorry, eight or 12 weeks 
period of diet changes before they started using the, the medication. And I hang out to the, from that to say, actually, this is, remember, most of the, the, the battle between diet, medicine, or surgery is in the way maintenance phase, which is the hardest of them all. Okay. So there's no reason for me to start if you haven't done any changes in your diet. And I lose some patients maybe because of it, because they say diet doctor and they're like, okay, I'm going to get my medication when they come to me and say, well, I don't know you. I don't know your blood work. I don't know if you could be pregnant. I don't know any of that. So we, we have to weigh and we'll, we'll apply, but this is great. This is all the things you can start doing even today, uh, changes that you can do. And the patients stick with me. And if it gets to some point that we have the discussion about anti-obesity medication, I do use it. Um, recently, in a, I, with a volunteer here in the clinic, he is a patient who lost a lot of weight and really wants to help all the time. We did a little bit of a research project in the clinic evaluating. It's like a, it's like, um, a weight loss register for patients who have been very successful, lost more than 30 pounds, just we call them and ask them questions. Out of that big group, only 50% of them had ever or are taking medication. So it's something I do. It's not the biggest part of my practice because every mostly is the um the diet plans but yes some of the drugs have been tried uh explaining to the patient this is not going to change any behaviors this is just to maybe show you how not being hungry means so you strive for that with your diet kind of like that way yeah it's sort of like the classic the band-aid on the problem rather than fixing the problem itself. Exactly. Um, Even though some of the mm -hmm. most newest drugs that you could use for other reasons, for example, diabetes that have been proven to help with weight loss if the patient is diabetic or could benefit from it, it's a consideration. Um, but definitely it yeah. will go with the changes on the behavior and the diet, which is my strong point. Yeah. And I guess that's a good point. So the, the sort of new class of diabetes medications, the GLP-1 agonists mm -hmm. that can really, they can really target hunger and reduce hunger to, to help people, um, just decrease what they're eating. Mm -hmm. Sure. There, I mean, that, that's a pretty strong. Yeah. Benefit. It basically increases satiety feeling. So they ended up eating less, but it's because they feel full faster, but right. it's been targeting their sugar metabolism for the diabetes, so we just might as well, instead of using others that could increase your weight, I will support that. Yeah, right, mm -hmm. right. But then the, the flip side is, well, instead of taking an expensive medication to reduce your hunger, why don't you just change the food you're eating to reduce your hunger? Absolutely. And they can have no, no, no. I definitely go back yeah. to that. I definitely but, always agree with you. Oh, I always. Hey, right. And I get that you do, but the patients sometimes don't get that. The patients mm. sometimes don't, don't mm. understand from one step to the other. So it's uh, that's why I can see the role of a medication almost as like a bridge sometimes to help people um, who aren't quite there, aren't quite ready to change their nutrition. But yeah. So, uh, so I think the role of medications is interesting, but so is the role of the very low calorie diets, whether mm -hmm. it's the, you know, the meal replacement shakes mm -hmm. or, um, and I, I don't know when, I think when I was sort of training, these were sort of seen as potentially dangerous mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, cardiac arrhythmias mm -hmm. and electrolyte imbalances and low protein. Mm -hmm. It seems like they've gotten a lot better from that standpoint right, that right. they're paying more attention um, so do those play a role in your treatment as well? We do. We do have that option for when I see a patient who will fit it. For example, patients who don't cook any other meals and they're eating out all the time. I say, well, you might as well pay for something different. Now, I have to say that even though um, I kind of follow more a spare protein model, 
modified fast program, then the very low calorie diet. So it's kind of a different approach because you don't take so many replacements. And I will tell my patients, listen, you at least one meal will be a meal because you need to learn how to eat. You cannot be in fake food forever, but it has a it has a role, it has a place. Um, and we have had independent research in diabetic patients when they took it. You remember those studies from like the United Kingdom for a year, even though they were getting the shakes for free. So that helped. And then half of the population got rid of diabetes, et cetera. So there are um, scientific independent research about uh, spare protein modified fast as a program that they can follow, especially if they're diabetic. So I do offer it. But in my mind, at least one meal will st- stay a meal because I want them to learn how to eat. Um, right. and, and, and mixing a shake may not give you the full concept of what is a protein, what is the fat, what is a, fa- what is a high fiber ca- uh, carbohydrate, and what are the uh, processed ones that we want to leave out. Yeah. And my, my impression of the meal replacement and the, the very low calorie, um, sort of medical supervised weight loss has always been, it works great in the short term, but the long-term success is awful. Now the evidence doesn't always support that though. The evidence, there are some studies showing pretty good effects at a year, some at even three years, Mm -hmm. but that's definitely not what I saw clinically. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you see in terms of the long-term success of that. It's not something I support long-term. I tell them really, listen, it, it, it could be something we start with, get you excited, maybe get your sugar control. If somebody's already having like shortness of breath and very high sugars, it does definitely help because they have more like a rapid event, but so we'll do a, a low carbohydrate diet with natural food. So if you look at a shake, which don't tell me wrong, I do promote when it's the appropriate moment and it has 10, 15 ingredients when eggs have one. And this, <laughs> my patients have right. chickens in their backyard. So, you know, right. that ma- makes to me a whole lot of a difference. So I, I don't really try to keep patients long-term on it, but I do use it when it's appropriate. Now, patients who go to the surgical route, they'll be in a lot of shakes. So I try to make sure that they understand that some of these ingredients now, since, for example, sucralose is not something we support so much. Um, some of the products that we have here don't contain sucralose or aspartame anymore. So, okay, let's try to at least use those. But um, but economics is a big thing. And if the patient chooses right. meal replacement, he will probably get it from our Walmart store. But um, um, but yeah, I explained it's a way to do it. It's a way to start. It's a way to change things around when things are not working, but I do not support it long-term. I haven't seen much results with it long-term. Yeah. And, and when it comes to weight loss, we don't just want weight loss. We want healthy weight loss, right? Absolutely. So what does that mean? That means, you know, improving your metabolic health. Mm-hmm. It means maintaining lean muscle mass. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the research will support low-carb diets, um, will support bariatric surgery and will support these very low calorie uh, meal replacements that they all can really help metabolic health um, mm-hmm. and can do it fairly quickly. Um, so what do you see as some of the, the the best ways to improve metabolic health for people that they can start, see the benefits and stick with? Um, and like, what do you use as motivating factors? There? That's the word I was going to tell you. It's all about motivation. That's why I told you the patient that scares me the most is the one who walks into my office and says, I don't know, my doctor sent me to you. 
And like, okay, mm-hmm. that is very hard because this is not going to work as smoothly. And those, those also have the motivation. So we work on that. I need to know your why, even if the why is I want to fit into this dress or I don't want to die from all these other current conditions, whichever it is, it has to be powerful enough for yourself. So whatever I'm trying to teach you, it will go and you will uh, get it done. And uh, we work a lot in the positive aspects. A low carbohydrate diet is, has a lot of things you can use and consume as food. They're very tasty and focus on that instead of focusing on the things you are not eating and remembering that losing weight does not depend on the food that you eat because then i have my other groups that are so focused and they said okay dr p what about this keto diet and i said well that's what you've been doing i just haven't given it that name and they start using all these keto supplements for example and i said listen you're not gonna lose the weight with all these products that you're using you're losing the weight for the things you're not eating and so controlling your hunger with a more natural approach um, that you can have instead of buying all these products, you can have eggs for the morning and tuna uh, with with vegetables for lunch and then your dinner and then try, n- try to eat that natural food, which contains one, two, three ingredients and it's going to be so easy for you to, to do. Plus, I always tell them, don't feel alone because anything I ask you to do, any homework that I give you, I'll be on it too. So I do uh-huh. follow low carbs. That's another thing about being in a small community wherever you go, everybody knows you. Everybody knows you now. Even with the mask, people recognize you. And um, they look at your car in the supermarket and they hurry away so I don't look at theirs in the store. Or when you're in a restaurant, people are paying attention. So I say, if I can do it and see for Delaware, you guys can do it and we're going to teach you how and we go on. But definitely that motivation is the most important thing for them to make that loop and make this change. Yeah. Leading by example is so important. So important. <laughs> well, you know, there's that, there's that old joke, never trust a skinny chef as if like all, <laughs> everybody who works with food is supposed to be overweight. Well, right? There, so, there's but, a lot of bias from doctors and from patients about weight. And, um, we just, I'd say you need to strive to be, you know, healthier, leaner, but also healthier and stop that, um, change your tape up here of how you're going to get there. And that's going to be your more powerful advice. But I have to say one day in the store, like I'm saying here, wherever you go, people recognize you. And I was looking at yogurts for my kids and the lady says, listen, uh, which is, which one is the yogurt with the most fat? And I look at her like, this is a weird question, but um, not many. Maybe this has a little because it's made with whole milk. And I said to her, do you ask me that question because you know who I am? Or she said, yeah, I know you're the doctor who likes fat. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That was funny. Yeah. That's a small town for you. Okay. Yeah, it's it's funny to be known as the fat doctor when what you do is you get rid of fat. Yeah, but, you're known but as it's the, the fat first doctor, one right? in town that ever introduced the idea of eating fat. And and, and when I used to do my group visits and and give them the whole like uh, uh, back scientific background of why do we do this, their faces they go like, my goodness, this is so new, this is so different. But they have embraced it. Um, and like I'm saying in that little re- report that we did for my patients, over ninety percent of them are doing low carb and intermittent fasting with more fat. Mm. So that is great. 
So we've used the term intermittent fasting a number of times um, during this conversation. And, you know, intermittent fasting is is hot right now, especially in the medical literature. We've just seen in the past month, we've seen three Tons, studies absolutely. Uh, that have come mm-hmm. out just in the past month. And, and we've written about them at Diet Doctor and they've got, you know, sort of different definitions of what fasting is and different outcomes that they're measuring, um, di- different protocols. So what do you sort of fall back on as the, this, the main protocol that you like to use and that you see the most... Uh, success with with your patients with intermittent fasting. I see it with the the, inter, the the intermittent fasting protocols, not the alternative days or prolonged fasting. Even though another half patients are showing up in my office are the ones who are already fasting and already keto or low carb, and then they come with me for for further advice. So those are already tough because they're already doing most of it great. Uh, but okay, let me go back to the intermittent fasting protocols. At the beginning, I tell them, listen, I know I ask a lot from you, but now I'm going to ask you to really actually wait and delay your meals. And and we start with a 12 hours, 16 hours, and they just move on and they do great. They, you can hear and see for Della where you can talk to people about 16 A's and 23 ones, uh, uh, windows to eat, and they they do it and they follow it. And it's really great. I do have a few that do prolonged fasting on their own uh, because they say I wasn't hungry for so many hours and so many days great. But mostly I support the intermittent fasting protocols. And I will say 90% of my patients get either introduced to the plan and a big majority of them do follow it. So, so that sort of the time restricted eating patterns of the, of the 16, 8, 18, It's the sixes easiest and- way to explain it and, and to get them to adhere to the protocol. Even though I said at the beginning, you're going to be looking at your time and see what time it's time to eat until you finally figure that you will eat only when you get hungry. So it will be at the beginning, like paying attention and to the, to the timing until you get, get trained in this sport. And then you will do it on your own eating only when you're hungry. And, yeah. and, and when my patients get there, they're super happy. They tell me, I don't even know how to explain your diet to people because I eat only when I'm hungry and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's such, it's, it's funny how that's such a foreign concept for so many people, but yet mm-hmm. when it, when you sinks in, it just sort of makes sense. And it's like, this is just the way it's supposed to be. I have a few patients that I told him you need to trademark your comments because he will say he was very, very super successful. And he's like, eating makes me hungry. Like, yeah, that's totally correct. Eating when you're fasting, your body fueling from the jet fuel you have. So it's amazing when they, they come with this on their own and, um, and I just support that. Yeah. So one other question I've been wanting to ask you is when, when you see patients for the first time, do you see a number of them who say I've quote tried everything? Mm -hmm. Like they feel like they've with their, they've exhausted Mm -hmm. all avenues for weight loss, Mm -hmm. um, and are sort of. I don't know, disappointed that they haven't been able to succeed, but they really haven't tried everything. Do you, do you see that sort of defeatism a lot or absolutely? I but that's the right word. but yeah. I will say much more two or three years ago when, um, nobody has, was really big and low carb and keto this last two or three years, patients come to me and said, I even tried keto Dr. P and it didn't ah. work. Um, so my job is to make them see what are the other circumstances that are going around them that may be beyond the food that we need to interpret her. Uh, like for example, can we be having a sleep? Well, first of all, let me tell you, most of the patients that come to be in the first appointment, they're doing three or four different diets in a day. They're doing meal replacements in the morning low carb for lunch, low fat for dinner, and then they do portion control for. So it's like, okay, let's focus in the one and let's try. 
And then the next time we, we, we also explore other areas, we do the history of weight, right? So changing jobs, working shift work, having sleep apnea, which medications are you on? Maybe the patients, a lot of my patients right. and heavy um, mental health medications, um, other things that don't feel like you cannot be successful. This is just, we find your challenges and we work through them. And even if it's one at a time, and uh, we do discuss all the, uh, um, like outside the box, beyond checking for your thyroid, which I think I found one hypothyroid patient in this whole practice, because my primary care docs around here are very good at figuring that one out. But is the the other things that we need to um, address. And I love what the patient's like, I never thought that could be a problem. I never thought that could be a reason. Okay, let's figure that one out. And the, definitely whatever you're doing right now, is not working. So let me give you a plan that we're going to follow. You know, we, we do it for each one of them. And each yeah. patient has the first appointment with me. And then the follow-up visits could be, well, they used to be groups with the dietitians and me. And now sometimes they follow with me or the dietitians, but we're all in like in the same zone um, yeah. there. Such an important point that, you know, we, we focus so much on nutrition, but there's so many other factors mm-hmm. that can impact, mm-hmm. um, our success or our lack of success in, in on our weight loss journey. Mm-hmm. So that was great. Now you've mentioned shift work a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the easy answer is, oh, well get off shift work, get on back on your regular, you know, circadian rhythm mm-hmm. and all is fine, but mm-hmm. people don't have that option. No, if, if you don't. have to work the graveyard shift, you have to work the graveyard shift. Right. So what kind of advice or, or little techniques can you use with those people to help them have more success despite their inflexibility of changing their schedule? Right. So that is a big number of the patients because those are the ones we already know is going to have the toughest to treat obesity and insulin resistance. Um, so I, I'm not surprised there's a big number of the patients that finally decide to go for a medical program or somebody with a doctor involved. So um, some of my tricks is to try to decrease hunger during the night hours by increasing their protein and and, and help them fast through those very tough hours of the the night and then focus more in the early morning or before work. And it has worked great with the patients. the other problem is um, the excess of food they have available during the shipboard for some of them. Uh, snacks and things like that happen a lot through COVID. Mm-hmm. So now just changing also the behavior already with the hunger decrease by eating more uh, low-carb, high-protein diet in between the shift and then try to keep uh, that behavior focus, willpower kind of moment during that night shift. Um, for those who don't have food available, like some uh, truck drivers or delivery person, I will just say, just change your circumstance, don't have the food available, and then wait until your meal. So we apply same. It's just that I want my patients to feel that I'm focusing in their problem. I'm not giving them one regular diet for everyone and expect that everybody will be successful when they have to work through the night and sleep to, and semi-sleep through the day. Uh, or have a second job and they will have to direct, okay, instead of stopping in this gas station, why don't we stop in this other one when they have this available and so and so. So uh, knowing your area and knowing the areas where they work and where they're getting their food is very important for me to give them a plan that they can actually follow. Yeah, I think that I think it's so important for a doctor to be aware of those circumstances. Because I mean, I can remember, you know, working late nights in the hospital where you're working overnight shift, you know, what food is available if you're hungry? Only junk. Oh, it's the only thing available. And it seems to be everywhere in the hospital Mm -hmm. in the middle of the Mm -hmm. night. And I can just imagine if you're a truck driver driving through the night, what's open for you to stop and eat at? Only junk. There, You don't have those healthy options. So to really sort of 
train them to think ahead and not get caught off guard and sort of preempt that. It's got to be so important. Right. I, but if, if you don't think about it, if the doctor doesn't think about it, you're probably not going to even bring it up. So right. it's so important that you're talking Just, to your patients I say, tell me the places that you see in your road. You know, what are the places? And then let's look at those menus. Let's, this is what you should be, if you're hungry. If you're not hungry, you don't eat anything. It's the simplest of the answers. And then you move on. But um, that has been very illuminating for them because they finally it's a plan that they can actually follow and it's not from a magazine that you say why I'm not losing weight if I'm following this magazine plan and it's not working for me and then you know we talk about that a lot mm-hmm. well you, you certainly lead as a fantastic example both what you do personally but how you approach your patients and the behavioral aspect the communication the way you communicate with your patients uh, the time you spend and, and just sort of your understanding of them and your way to explain this. So I, I wish everybody who wants to lose weight could see you as their doctor. Obviously that can't happen, <laughs> yeah, but they, <laughs> they can certainly use you as the example of what their doctor mm-hmm. should be doing and how they should be relating with them um, and look for a doctor who, who does that. So, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful example. And I hope, I hope people can take that away from this interview of, of hearing you, hearing your approach and saying, gosh, that's what I want for my doctor. And that's what I should expect from my doctor. Absolutely. So I, yeah. So being, being the doctor in charge of the food and we can manage their medications when we're de prescribing that feel them, make them feel so much comfortable. Um, because you know, they feel like this, it's a whole aspect that we're trying to cover for them. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, any, um, any last words you want to leave our listeners with? And then if, uh, is there somewhere they can find you to learn more about you? Right. So I do have, uh, I, we didn't even talk about this, but I do have a strong, uh, will to try to help my Spanish speaking, uh, patients population, uh, especially with COVID that was a big eye opening for me. So I created YouTube videos, uh, that are free in Spanish. You can find me under Dr. Sandra Palavecino in which we explain, uh, insulin resistant, the other hormones, uh, how to do a low carbohydrate diet and, uh, how to do intermittent fasting. It's just like an introduction. Um, I'm also growing my Instagram account with both English and Spanish. Um, so that will be also under Dr. Sandra Palavecino, DR period, Sandra Palavecino, uh, because in Spanish will be doctora, but in English is DR period, Sandra Palavecino. And, um, and in here in C for Delaware, well, I'm the one and only, so you can find me easily. Uh, if you search, uh, weight loss programs in Southern Delaware and you'll find me. So that would be easy. Mm-hmm. I have had patients that have come to me after researching dietdoctor.com or, uh, Megan's and Dr's Funk's website. So that's, a, I even have patients coming from Washington DC driving two hours to come here, but, but that's, you know, we try to serve the area as better as we can. Yeah, you know, and I'm so glad you brought up the the language barrier. We talked a little about the socioeconomics, but mm-hmm. then on top of that, if you throw in a language barrier, it can get even more difficult. So the fact that you're doing those uh, videos in Spanish is great. And at Diet Doctor, we have a whole Spanish section of our yeah, website. Yeah, I would too, love so to. Really, I would love to help. It's it's great. I, I think they need a lot of help. Yeah, great. All right, well, wonderful. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for all you do. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.